Welcome to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, episode number 63. My name is Dominic. I am one of the co-hosts of the show. The other host's name is Janus, and he will be showing up here shortly. Today we speak with polymath Eric Arneson. Eric is the second personal acquaintance and Portlander we've had uh, in a row on the show. And it's going to be a good one. He's a lot of fun. Eric is a writer, a podcaster, he is a longtime tarot reader and ceremonial magician, and he runs the Arnomancy website, which includes a blog, a store, and his podcast, the Arnomancy Podcast, which I highly recommend. He's had a lot of amazing guests on the show. Fairly recently, he did a pretty comprehensive series on the three books of occult philosophy by Agrippa, which is fantastic. So yeah, definitely head over to his website, check out his podcast. It's a lot of fun and super informative. In today's episode, we cover the pretty deep topic of the imaginal, the power of images and imagination. Um, this dovetails nicely with other episodes we've done on the topic. Eric has some really unique insights. He's very well-versed. And so uh, he adds a lot of excellent food for thought. Before we get into the episode, we want to thank our Patreon supporters. We literally couldn't do this without your support, as there are costs to doing a podcast, believe it or not. So thank you so much for everyone who is supporting us. And if you would like to support us, please feel free to head over to our Patreon page and do what makes sense for you. We dedicate this to Hermes and Asclepius, and may any merits that we accumulate doing this work be distributed to all sentient beings, so that they, together with us, may equally realize awakening. here with a good friend, uh, fellow podcaster, writer, and Portlander, Reverend Eric of the Arnomancy Podcast. Welcome to the show, Eric, finally. Why, thank you very much, Dom. Welcome, Eric. Thanks, Janus. 
Yeah, it's been a long time coming. I think we were on your podcast, your old podcast back in 19 or yeah, 19. Uh, 2018, 2019, maybe. And then uh, uh, the yeah. word podcasts in 19, anything. Yeah, that's true. Podcasts are like only 20 years old. <laughs> that's I've, like I've been a fifth a... of your age, Dom. Right, right. So <laughs> we so, were on your podcast a few years ago. It's true. And uh, we were supposed to have you on our podcast, but uh, for some reason we never did. But here we are. Well, you know, uh, I don't know if that was ever part of our deal back then, um, but that was when I was doing um, My Alchemical Bromance. That was a, it was a different world. It was a different age. It right. was, it was definitely. Um, I remember though that at the time I thought I was so clever because the first question I asked you guys is like, "All right, which one of you is the magician and which one is the fool?" And both of you got so quiet. You were stumped. And I was like, how do they not get asked this all the time? Like they have a podcast called The Magician and the Fool and there are two of them. I know. You would expect <laughs> to hear that more, I think, but um Yeah, yeah. We don't. So congratulations well, on <laughs> cracking that code. I, uh, I never cracked it. I still don't know. <laughs> little bit of this, little bit of that. <laughs> <laughs> so um for those that don't know you, um and I can't believe there's anyone out there that doesn't, but uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, Eric. Well, I was born in the 20th century. Okay. Uh, and uh, well, I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm, I am like many of the people you have on your podcast, a ceremonial magician. I've been practicing ceremonial magic for probably about 20 years, like less than 30, probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been a Freemason since the year 2000. I've been into like a cult and tarot and, weird ass stuff like that since the eighties. Uh, and then I've been running the Arnimancy website, which is a blog and a podcast and a online shop, um, since maybe 2014. And, uh, I mean the Arnimancy podcast is younger than that, but it's still been going for a while. And, uh, yeah, I think it's really hard to talk about myself. It was easier when we weren't recording, when you were like, how should I introduce you? Because then you would be talking about me, but right. Um, yeah. And I guess aside from that, you know, I live in Portland, Oregon. I really love it here. It's a very weird city filled with weird characters. And I really enjoy that about it. And, uh, I enjoy bird watching. Nice. Nice. And long walks on the beach. Weird, <laughs> weird characters in Portland. We just spoke to a mutual friend, Arun. Mm-hmm. Joseph. Oh man. Reagan. Yeah. He is, uh, he's one of my favorite weird, weird characters. I, I love Arun. Yeah. He is Great. awesome. Cool, man. And you left out the fact that you were John Michael Greer's neighbor. That's important. That's your claim to fame. It, it is. A, it's definitely a claim to fame. Um, I was his neighbor for a few years in uh, Southern Oregon. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we were in the same Masonic lodge. Interesting. Okay. So, how did you get into all this crazy stuff? Um, how did this all culminate for you? Um, so, you know, it happened in stages. Uh, I was fortunate enough to um, not be raised in a, in a Christian church. And so my parents let me do a lot of uh, exploring and reading of weird things when I was young. And uh, I came across my first tarot deck in probably like 88 or 89. And, um, and also some Scott Cunningham book about witchcraft. And I just got way, way into it. And then 
in college, I started getting into, you know, like Robert Anton Wilson and Philip K. Dick and Principia Discordia sort of stuff. And then after that, uh, you know, it's just, it's just a downhill slide from there. Got into Kabbalah. I met people in the OTO, but I never joined the OTO. Uh, started just studying weird stuff. Uh, the internet really enabled me a lot. I was part of a, an online study group called the Tamarisk Crescent that I think started in 2000. Um, I was working through Donald Michael Craig's Modern Magic, which is a book with surprisingly good content given the horrible cheesiness of, of its cover. Um, and then after that, uh, Freemasonry led me in a lot of really interesting directions, like into the art of memory, um, which is one of the topics that I've just been really, really fascinated with both, uh, studying and practicing. And then, um, it's hard to keep up with a culture as it shifts and moves around, especially in the time before podcasts, you know, there was, there's a whole resurgence of grimoires and grimoire magic. A lot of, a lot of older sort of like Renaissance stuff was starting starting to come back to the fore and get popular again. Uh, the PGM started to get popular. Uh, I think people had kind of ignored almost all of the PGM up until, you know, 20-ish years ago. I mean, not, pe- you know, magicians. Practicing mm-hmm. magicians hadn't been paying, paying a lot of attention to it. Um, so when I started paying attention again, all of a sudden there was all this stuff. I'd fallen behind on so much stuff, and it's been really fascinating catching up and learning uh, again and discovering so much, like, the trip through the art of memory uh, involved a lot of study of Renaissance magic and Renaissance um, philosophy, and uh, in particular, sort of like the way the Italian Renaissance revitalized and changed the way we thought about stuff and the way we looked at things, um, and then how you know everything just came crashing down during the Protestant Reformation, and and all of that led me into some you know, interesting magical revelations, I suppose, about the way uh, the imagination works, the role that the imagination has in the in the magician's life or in anybody's life. But uh, magicians, I think, have the ability to, or the opportunities to sort of train a far more um, potent and active imagination than, than most people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we tend to it, relegate the imagination to, to children or, you know. Yeah. When we don't, and uh, magicians are are guilty of this too. Magicians and new thought people, we we refrain from talking about the imagination and instead talk about like visualization or the astral plane or things of this nature, where we don't really want to admit like this is stuff that's happening in our imagination because our culture has diminished the imagination so much that it is really very much like a a child's thing now. Right. I mean, when you really think about it, imagination is what, you know, runs, runs the world. I mean, how can oh, you have built the yeah. pyramids without imagination? How can you have quantum physics without imagination? I mean, it's, it's impossible and it's not just, you know, not just for Sesame Street. Yeah. And I think that as somebody who has really embraced kind of like some Renaissance occult approaches to things, I tend to treat imagination as a more fundamental level of reality than the physical world, right? Like the physical world is, is an emergent property of the imaginal. So, which, 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 you know, it's 
which is something that's very pleasant to say out loud and it's pleasant to hope that it's true, but it's also very difficult to live that way all the time because yeah, sounds yeah. great. It sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> well, can we, so can we touch on Henri Curabon was very concerned with this uh, distinction between the imaginal uh-huh. and the imaginative. You know, yeah. The, the quality of the, uh, of the imagination as a perceptive function, which enables us to interact with um, the Alam al-Mithal, the, the, the world of the ideas, the platonic mm-hmm. uh, intermediary daimonic realm. And I, I, I think that where you seem to be going is a segue into that idea. Would you say that that's correct? Yeah, I am not always super concerned with that particular line, but I do know that a lot of uh, that, that scholars who talk about it nowadays or who have talked about it in in recent uh, decades, you know, sort of draw a, li- draw a line between the um, imaginative and the imaginal, where, uh, you know, the imaginal is more purposeful and more a result of uh, like an active imagination or actively interacting and influencing your imagination or controlling your imagination. Um, and maybe, maybe that line is important. I think that as a practitioner, uh, I will say that as a practitioner, it becomes almost a line that doesn't have much meaning, you know? So imagination is part of it is, you know, it comes out of the, you know, the imaginal faculty, which is the ability to use your imagination as a, uh, uh, an organ of perception as a perceptive, faculty. Um, I guess organ probably isn't the right word to use anymore, but you'll sometimes see that, you know, the, the phantasmal yeah. apparatus of the imaginative, imaginative faculty. And, you know, uh, like Agrippa's theory of uh, how senses work, how light interacts with the senses, um, there is no sense that doesn't somehow interact with the imaginal faculty. Like it's basically the the focal points through which all of your senses go, you know, your, your soul itself sort of lives more in the imaginal world than in the body. And so in order for your soul to receive uh, impressions from senses, it has to travel through, you know, those senses have to communicate with the imaginal faculty, but at the same time, the imaginal faculty is that, is that uh, sense that you use when, you know, like scrying, for instance, um, gazing into crystal balls or, or receiving visions in smoke or receiving visions of any sort. Like, you know, those are things that sort of happen uh, because you have uh, an imaginal faculty and because you have, you know, uh, I always like the term that uh, Juan Culliano used. I can't remember exactly where he got it, um, but the phantasmal apparatus, which I think is the imaginal faculty. I think it's the same thing. He, it's probably just like a word he took from some Renaissance dude. <laughs> so awesome man so we're like just diving right into to kind of the topic um you're kind of a plethora of of knowledge and and practice and so we were struggling with like what kind of topic to discuss with you and so the idea of image magic came up um we always mm-hmm. like to kind of focus on what our guests are really into at any given moment so image magic is something that you're really into and i think it's I don't think it's something that we've specifically addressed. I mean, we've definitely touched on it um, for sure. Yeah, I would love to talk about it. I might have some opinions on it that might make some of your listeners yell at you, but that's cool, right? That's what we want. You want uh, listener feedback. As a, yes. as a podcaster, I know that even angry listener feedback still warms the heart. 
totally and totally and i mean it's not anything new i mean as soon as janice says anything we have negative feedback coming through so, <laughs> so i'm just gonna keep saying anything over and over again to the podcast i'm gonna try and pepper this podcast with the word anything as much as i can there you go to drive up engagement from the from the naysayers and would-be haters come right. to my house I'll give you my address maybe you can mail me a book <laughs> <laughs> they should mail you a book explaining why you're wrong right i would love that i would enshrine it in my ho- house and Masturbate in front of it all whoa, the time. Whoa, 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 whoa. This is, oh, a, kid. Is this this is a, fam- a family friendly show. Family friendly show. <laughs> <laughs> we have lots of kids listening. Well, I'm dedicating that to my family of haters. <laughs> uh, where were we? <laughs> we were at Image Magic. We were oh, at right. Image Magic. So, yeah, uh, what is well, I got a good, magic? that's a great image. It is a great image. Yeah. You know, uh, I'll talk. Yeah. That's definitely something we should talk about is, okay. So like image magic, um, I think, uh, when most, uh, modern magicians talk about image magic, they're usually talking about like astrological talismans, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a lot of, yeah. Picatrix, Agrippa, uh, you know, there's tons of, of source material for these. Um, and you know, that's really good, powerful magic, but a lot of it is sort of like, uh, kind of pre-prescribed or um, reliant on uh, physical materials or reliant on inscribing images in physical objects and, you know, during, you know, uh, astrological elections and such. Mm-hmm. Um, in experimenting with it and in, in playing around with it, I've discovered that there's a lot, there, there's a greater depth to how this sort of image magic works. It's not necessarily just drawing, drawing a thing on a piece of paper or, you know, carving a rock or, or however, however you just decide to put your image into the physical world. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I have discovered is that uh, the imaginal version of the image, the whatever imaginal image you associate with the talisman is kind of the one that is the most important. Uh, sometimes even to the point where, uh, there are, I believe plenty of types of image magic that you can do without a physical talisman. Okay. Can you extrapolate on that? Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, for instance, uh, what uh, what what uh, Janus just did there by um, implanting an image in the people he was talking to, right? Like um, a lot of this has to do with kind of the the um, the sort of like Renaissance theory of how communication works. You know, uh, when I communicate to you, my soul uh, needs to get uh, con- concepts and ideas uh, through the physical world, through your physical senses, and into your soul. Right, our souls don't have a a direct connection. They have to go through sure. this weird, awkward medium, which means that what happens is your soul, which communicates in images in the imaginal world, uh, somehow pushes those images uh, in reverse through your imaginal faculty, uh, where they are transformed into speech. Uh, the speech, you know, I guess right now since we're miles away it gets transformed into electronic zinglings and beamed into your ear holes where your imaginal faculty your imaginal faculty does the reverse thing translates my words into new images that your soul then comprehends 
So, so speech itself has the power to kind of like create images in others. Mm-hmm. Um, we see we see examples of this sort of theory in a lot of uh, in, in texts that sort of relate to images and um, and uh, and the theory of how like divine light and divine images uh, work in in a lot in in medieval texts and stuff. You know, there's like. Oh, one of my favorite quotes is this one about is this one from this monk who talks about uh, lovesickness, um, and he says that lovesickness happens when an image of of the target of your love has managed to uh, take up um, residence in your mind, mm-hmm. and you're unable to dislodge it. You know, so in that sense, you've basically created an image and you know cursed yourself with a love spell almost, but um, but it still has to do with sort of like an image of the target. You know, it's the, it's the image itself that is potent. Um, we also see this a lot in how there's oh man, hold on, I totally just lost my train of thought. Jana, say something. <laughs> he's too, he's on Facebook right something. now. Something. Okay, there we go. <laughs> no, I should have said anything. 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 Um, I'm actually but, not on Facebook. I was looking oh, at. Are you on Tinder? No, I don't touch that garbage <laughs> fire. <laughs> when Facebook is a garbage fire, isn't it? Oh, it's a, yeah, it no, is. yeah, no, yeah. Um, no, I was looking up the what's what the um, I was looking up the what feast day of what saint it was on Pornhub. No, I was, <laughs> no, I was looking, no, I was just looking at because it, it just uh, yesterday was the feast day of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, which is pretty significant for anybody. Well, that's in. funny because yesterday was also National Ice Cream Day. Boom. Well, I ate ice cream last week twice, <laughs> which is way more than I usually eat ice cream. <laughs> So that just shows the imaginal at work. It does. <laughs> Absolutely. So I don't remember where we were, but you lost your train of thought somewhere. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, I was talking about sort of like uh, examples of images and how images are sort of portrayed in um, in sort of like Renaissance, uh, Renaissance and earlier writing. Um, but uh, I think kind of the, the more interesting um, thing that happens is uh, as the Renaissance sort of develops, you get thinkers like uh, Giordano Bruno, who are not only kind of like immersed in the world of magic, but also uh, immersed in uh, the ultimate um, imaginal practice, uh, which is the art of memory, the sort of crafting of of your internal imaginal world uh, using stuff like, you know, sacred geometry and... Um, and incredible bouts of like uh, creative processing and creative uh, melding and merging of images together into new forms and new uh, ways of meaning. But Bruno's theory is 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 kind of deeper than that. You know, he has a theory that I don't think was necessarily his alone, although he definitely did a good job uh, enumerating it. Of enumerate enumerating is that the right word? That's not the right word. Elucidating. There we go. Ah, accusing Bruno of elucidating anything is a lie too. He never elucidated a thing. He made everything way more confusing. But uh, he does talk about sort of this concept of eros or love as being the kind of binding force that that held things together. And eros, of course, wasn't just a an emotion, but a sort of like 
cosmic, almost creative force that bound, uh, that bound like to like, you know, Eros would explain why, you know, sunflowers have an affinity for the sun or Eros would explain why, you know, an, an image of a, of a woman with an apple and a comb would have an affinity to Venus or why these things would be bound together. You know, Eros was sort of like the love that held things together. Mm. Uh, in addition to being the force that holds things apart. It was a time before uh, we had really, f- he, he, you know, Giordano Bruno was burned at the stake about 80 years before we figured out anything about gravity. You know, we had, we had Kepler's laws of motion. We had uh, Galileo with his explanation of stuff. Uh, all of these scientists were very reluctant to talk about um, action at a distance because it just seemed too occulty and weird and people were getting burned at the stake and stuff. And it was just sort of uncomfortable for humans in general. But there, but you know, Giordano Bruno was kind of, he didn't, he kind of, he tried to honey badger his way through philosophy. It didn't work. Turns out, <laughs> turns out he's flammable. <laughs> Jeez. I, I love the way you articulated this, Eric. And it's funny because when you think of Renaissance, these Renaissance theories and philosophies and quote unquote science, um, you think of something that's outdated and, you know, wrong essentially um but everything that you've said now is very reasonable and i think applicable to to modern you know modern theories of of how we perceive things and and communicate i mean this there's nothing crazy Mm. about what you've said in my opinion well good i feel like uh you are not an unbiased audience so i would be wary of that i think that a lot of the stuff that i am saying probably sounds like a lot of nonsense to people who have yeah who are who are sort of like more True. grounded in physical sciences but um especially since I, I i believe that the kind of i mean when we get into like the rays and things i i, I could see more i, I could yeah. see that as being more problematic so yeah and i have i struggle with that one i struggle with that a lot um there's no line in um there's no line in in Renaissance light between, uh, you know, the metaphorical divine light and the physical concept of light, uh, and they didn't have a need or a way to even discover and draw that line. Uh, um, and I don't, and and that makes it really really difficult to kind of look at and take seriously. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, and and also they had confusion, you know. Um, when Agrippa talks about divine light, he totally has this thing where he discusses, you know, like the the flashlight theory of eyeballs, which, which you know, n- nobody knew that light was a, a thing thing. You know, they didn't realize that it was particles or, or anything of that nature. Uh, and Agrippa talks about like the sort of flashlight theory of eyeballs, and he sort of uses this in his description of how light filters down from the divine through the planetary spheres and out into the world and allows us to perceive. But at the same time, he's skeptical of it. He's like, I don't know about this. I don't really think that our eyes shoot out light beams. We're not like, we're not like shooting lasers anywhere or anything like that. Uh, because, uh, because if, if that was the case, how, how come we can't see in a dark room? Right. So, you know, so, so Agrippa expresses some skepticism, um, not a lot, but a little bit. Uh, and so when I sort of look at these things and try to figure out how to work with them or how to reconcile them with the fact that like sometimes image magic works, 
you have to realize that uh, in the modern world, in the world that we live in, there's a there's a really strong line between the 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 material and the non-material. Um, but there's also we have a need for explicitly understanding certain things as metaphors. Uh, and in, you know, I mean, astrologers do this all the time. You know, we look at, we look at like, you know, the, the, the heavens and the planets and pretend that there are a limited number of them and pretend that they are moving in specific ways and that their uh, positions relative to the horizon and all that kind of stuff is more significant than, than where, than you know, the fact that we're all hunks of rock and gas, hurtling a zillion miles an hour through the solar system, right? Like, right. Uh, you know, uh, astrology, the fact that astrology continues to work and be popular, even though it is entirely based on a heliocentric universe, uh, means that we can, means that we can use some of these things as metaphorical systems, uh, while still appreciating the fact that there is like a, an actual physical, observable, measurable material world that we live in. It's just, you know the phys- the 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 fact that something is observable and repeatable and measurable that's a that's a property of the material world it doesn't need to necessarily be a property of every world i think it's a value i think a valuable distinction here is that the again you know the theory of the rays al kindi is the one who really popularizes from my understanding yeah. um, but it really has roots in in uh, ancient greek ideas and I think that mm-hmm. the rays the rays are pneumatic; they're not physical. So, in order to perceive those rays, you have to perceive them through pneuma and the eye of nous. So, mm-hmm. in a darkened room, could you perceive the rays? Well, not if you're using your physical senses, but if you're using an immaterial percipience, which arises from the subtle awareness. Uh, mm-hmm. perhaps you could see those rays. And I think that that is corroborated by experienced meditators, for instance, who describe experiences of being able to see with their eyes closed. That would be cool. I don't know that I've ever uh, thought of trying that, but I mean, I guess you also have uh, experienced martial artists who who gain some sort of sense of the world around them. And they're blindfolded and stuff like there's, yeah, I mean, Humans are capable of doing some weird stuff, which I appreciate. Right. And, and so speaking of what humans are capable of, I, I want to go back uh-huh. to the, the, I want to go back. <laughs> I'm like, what do you know, Dom? What do you know? <laughs> no, uh, $10 million dollar question that has no answer. <laughs> <laughs> That's getting cut out for sure. Um, <laughs> Kidding. Constant disappointment to me. I'm leaving that in. Eric, where are your sound effects? Now we need it. Thank you. Come on. We got any other sound effects? <laughs> oh yeah, I got tons of sound effects. I've got uh I've got That's a good one. And uh all right, Eric. I need you. To, if you're going to be a guest <laughs> on this show, you need to be using that more. You need oh, to be man. utilizing the sound effects. You don't want me to be using my sound effects. This all is the time. devolving I mean, into total chaos. This is de- <laughs> yeah. This is <laughs> okay. Back on track. Look, so, it's Eric, time. It's time to impose order upon a, a chaotic I a, universe. I had a serious question. Oh, okay. who has okay. the gavel? Who has the gavel? Dominic. Dominic oh, does. <laughs> 
You're going to have editing hell with I this know, episode, Dom. I'm excited this about this. I'm feeling like I just want to leave it all in at this point. Just screw it. <laughs> so, Eric, let's be serious. Yes. Okay. Serious. Bring it I'm together. Here. Get it together. Um, I'm here. So, so back to what we were you were talking about earlier, and I think it's a fascinating topic in itself, uh, worthy of an entire episode. I think the art of memory. Yeah. Um, I just want to pick your brain on that a little bit. Like, how how do you use that practically, or how often do you use it? I mean, is this something that that you utilize often, or is just something that's in the back of your mind as something you could use if you wanted to? Like, how practical is this for you? So, uh, I will say, okay, now the art of memory is um, is amazing. Uh, I do not uh, practice it to the level that like memory competitors do. You know, I mean, there are people mm-hmm. who use the art of memory to like speed memorize decks of cards and speed memorize and do like incredible, incredible feats of memory. Um, I don't do that. I use it a lot for, uh, memorizing ritual. Uh, I use it mostly for occult stuff. Yeah. So, but the other thing is, uh, I've been doing it for a long time. You know, I think I've started working with the art of memory in, um, maybe 2004, I'm not sure. Uh, I do know that I do know that it's been a weird road. You know, uh, I had to learn a lot about the different techniques on my own. You know, sometimes I would discover a technique and I'd be really, really excited about it. And then a couple of years later, I'd discover that that technique was just, you know, written about by some monk in the ninth century and I'd be like, Oh, whatever. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> um, yeah. so, uh, there, there is a lot of, there is a lot of like really, amazing stuff you can do with it um, just in terms of have of you know everyday memorization stuff um, I'm fortunate in that I usually have a pretty good memory for certain things uh, I'm really bad at remembering faces and names but uh, anything other than that I'm I can get yeah and so for <laughs> listeners who maybe aren't familiar with the art of memory um, what oh, is it me... and where did it derive from where did Bruno get this? Uh, all right, I'll give the I'll give the really really brief version. Um, I do have an entire uh, lecture on the art of memory stored in a memory palace. If you would like me to whip that out, but it takes <laughs> sure. like forty five minutes to get through. No, no. no. <laughs> uh, so the art of memory is um, it's old. It dates back to uh, ancient Greece, as far as we know, um, and it is basically a way of using the imagination to first of all create. Um, some sort of structure. Usually it's a, it's an architectural structure, but there's a lot of variation. Uh, it can be like an apartment you walk through, a beautiful old cathedral, your favorite library, a shopping mall, something like that. Um, and inside that structure, you store uh, mnemonic items that allow you to then remember things in sequences. That's sort of the most basic. That's the, the, uh, the method of, of uh, Loki or the memory palace method. Okay. Walk us through an example. Uh, okay. I guess the, the, the example that I usually sort of, uh, fall back on uh, the first memory palace that I did, uh, I was actually memorizing stuff out of Agrippa. Uh, the memory palace is almost entirely dissolved at this point. Like I don't remember a whole lot of it, but one, uh, in particular. So I was using, um, John Michael Greer's memory garden. You can still find his article, the article on online. It's been, you know, pirated and copied all over the place. Uh, so 
you can go look that up. Um, and in the memory garden, you go and visit these uh, pagodas that are all sort of coded according to the numerology of uh, Agrippa, you know, sort of like the colors that he associates with the various numbers. And so each one, each one of the pagodas has, uh, you know, a specific color. It has symbols on it that are associated with planets or the zodiac or whatever it was using. And then uh, in the pagoda or gazebo, I guess you can put uh, memory images that uh, help you remember things in a list. So, for instance, um, I was memorizing uh, incenses associated with the planets. And uh, my memory image for uh, frankincense was an image of Frankenstein's monster with a comically large nose. Right? Okay. Frankincense. Okay. Okay. Got it. So, so the, uh, you know, images and um, locations have rules associated with them going back, you know, you know, 2000 years. Uh, locations that the images get stored in need to be like large enough to hold like a human sized object, they need to be well lit, they need to be distinctive, uh, or part of a sequence so that you can put them in order easily. Uh, the memory images, which represent the things that you're trying to remember, the lists that you're trying to remember, uh, need to be striking. They need to be, uh, you know, stupid puns like like Frankenstein's giant nose is frankincense. Um, they need to they can be uh, so they can be they can be humorous. They can be um, shocking or alarming or horrifying or even erotic um based on you know every person will discover things that that work better for them you know images that work better or things that mm -hmm. that tickle the memory a little bit more um and then the whole idea is you can string these along you know as big as your memory palace is you can string along these images in the memory palace and remember things in sequence but all of it is based on uh training uh your imagination you know so it involves it's, it, there's a lot of work to set up and get started with this. You know, you have to train the imagination. You have to learn how to make the images. You know, making the images. Uh, I know a lot of uh, people who who study the art of memory probably have the most trouble with that. You know, because you have to you have to suddenly use your imagination to come up with fantastical images that you know don't mm -hmm. exist in the real world in order to have these things work. But, you know, I mean, I did it, I, I ended up learning uh, a number of techniques, some of which I stumbled upon, some of which I read about in books. Um, you know, like when I first moved to Portland, I lived up in, in North Portland, in Nopo. Uh, and one of the really, really obnoxious features of uh, North Portland, which is the, the fifth of our six quadrants, um, it was the fifth of five uh, back then, but we have since added another quadrant, which totally makes sense. The, none of the streets in Nopo uh, are alphabetical or numerical in, in order, right? They're just, it's just a bunch of street names. And so I was lost a lot. Uh, back when I moved here, I think I just had like mm -hmm. an iPhone 3 and it sucked. Um, so, you know, using Google Maps or whatever the hell we had available back then was very difficult. And in order to get around, I used uh, the art of memory to uh, memorize the order of the streets. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, but also I've used, you know, you know, you can use it for really mundane stuff like shopping lists. You can use it for really important things. Like you could create a, uh, I mean, uh, this definitely is something that uh, Janus should uh, consider the theater of um, uh, Abrasax, 
with 365 alcoves all the way around and you put the saint for each day in each in each alcove and you just walk it every day and uh eventually you'll never need wikipedia to figure out which saint day it is you're creating a imaginal wikiplex i am i am i'm doing it in your head too <laughs> i mean that's helpful thank you but i would if for abersex i'd probably do something like the the uh, egyptian spirits of the decans yeah yeah i know that would be good i don't know there is there a is there a Christian equivalent to God of the year? Um, that's a good question. I mean, that's a whole thing. That's a whole mm. rabbit hole we could go down, but it would take us away from image magic. I will say there was an interesting um, synchronicity there, the Frankenstein thing, because our last show, um, Zygote was literally used the same an analogy with mm-hmm. Frankenstein and frankincense. He literally. We were joking about Frankenstein yeah. and frankincense in our yeah in our last episode. What? Huh. That's funny. I've I know that I've used that example in um in uh, when I lecture on the art of memory, and it tends to get a lot of really really confused looks from the audience. Uh, I know that it's an incredibly stupid video, visual pun, but uh, it worked. It was like the first image that I ever created and I still remember it. I still associate Frankenstein's giant nose with Frankincense. So you're like a, you're like a, a Promethean magpie of the imagination. I guess so. I think that that image might've gotten out and it is possibly alive. <laughs> it's my Karanzan. <laughs> well, it's shocking how, how bad the the typical modern person's memory is oh absolutely yes not only compared to um ancient man you know the, the men in greece who were memorizing the entire homeric epics but just us maybe 20 30 years ago uh how how devolved we've become as far as memory goes oh yeah i mean I mean, like you, the 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 influence of technology of of this technology is part of that too. I mean, I was just talking about how I still I still keep maps in my car because I I, I let, and I pay attention to where I'm going, you know, in my environment, so that I can remember where I am. I mean, the erosion of memory, and this this argument could go back to the dawn of language. There's there's authors. Who's the guy who wrote about the alphabet and the goddess? I'm not saying I necessarily completely agree with this premise, but there's a theory that says that, you know, just the introduction of language itself caused a diminishment in the memory faculty. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, um, and of course, we, we always, you know, I mean, Socrates is the one who, I guess Plato is one who, who wrote it down first in a way that where he wrote, you know, Socrates hated written language. He believed that writing would... Um, encourage people to stop using their memory. Uh, and, you know, he was right. Uh, we have a lot of documentary evidence and textual evidence that sort of shows that the introduction of the printing press and the spread of literacy um, was one of the things that helped kill um, the art of memory. Yeah, makes sense. Um, which is too bad. I've, I, I, I really love it. It is... Um, here, okay, so here's there's a couple things I really love about it. First of all, uh, it's practical. Like, how often do you come across an occult practice that is like useful in everyday life? You know, uh, is, do do you have you know the LBRP uh, doesn't help you buy groceries? Right, right. Um, I mean, can you really say? I mean, it's occult in that it's kind of mysterious and hidden. 
and hidden, but it's and weird, and nobody does but, it. It's literally well, like, a cult. I know, yeah. But you're talking about those kind of memory Olympics um, that that do happen. Are they using these same techniques? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They are using these same techniques, but they're not. That I, as far as I can tell, most of them aren't really approaching it from a spiritual standpoint. Right, right, right. But I mean, um, but people do calisthenics. That's basically just fast LBRP. <laughs> Right? <laughs> Janus, we'd like you to weigh in on this. I mean, I, I have I have a mixed I have mixed feelings about LBRP in general. Um, yeah, me too. <laughs> you know, I have mixed, I have I know see the thing is look, it's really quote unquote cool to talk on GD stuff, but most of the people who wanna speak in a negative way about the golden dawn don't realize that it's like a college level curriculum and that the people who do it are actually extremely disciplined and why would you be doing something like that if it had no effect and did nothing you know what i mean so there's that on the other hand i think the way you get results from the golden dawn system is by really just concentrating on working that system alone you know really investing in it so is the LBRP necessary if you're not within the Golden Dawn and working their system or even just working their system? I'm not sure. Do I think banishing well, is necessary? I mean, in an Egyptian, sorry, sorry, I'll, I'll make it quick. In an Egyptian okay. context, the Egyptians didn't banish. Like when they did, it, not not for most of their sacramental theurgy, they did, you know, in Egypt, when you invoke the gods, you didn't banish the gods. You might, mm-hmm. an exorcism was used to remove evil spirits but on the other hand the influx of the divine into a space would naturally do that as well right i wasn't trying to diminish the importance of the lbrp i was trying to emphasize that uh there are you know just because somebody uh is waving their arms around doesn't mean that they're that they're doing magic you know the lbrp is sort of an immersive thing you have to have you know, you have to have the technique, you have to have all the ritual that goes along with it, you have to have all the stuff that goes along with it. Um, You know, the art of memory is the same way, like you can definitely use it in a fairly mundane way to just get good at memorizing uh, the order of a deck of cards or get good at memorizing uh, grocery lists or get good at memorizing, you know, your family tree or something of that nature. Um, But it is also uh, intimately intertwined with the same imaginal techniques that uh, occultists use all the time. And in that sense, the LBRP can, or, I'm sorry, the, the art of memory can be used as a magical tool. So, uh, and I've used it in an, as a magical tool in a, in a number of ways. Uh, one of them is um, using uh, an imaginal temple to uh, encode a ritual. And, you know, when you do that, you just make sure that the the way you encode the ritual, the images you use are images that align with how the ritual is supposed to go or how the ritual is supposed to be performed. I've used uh, art of memory techniques to uh, explore some of the uh, visualization stuff that like Arya Coplin uh, suggests for the Sefer Yetzirah. You know, like some of those like weird ass, huge Kabbalistic uh, tables of letters and you know the the like the the 231 gates visualization like those sorts of things like the art of memory is literally made for those sorts of approaches i've also used it you know for things like uh correspondences you know correspondences between you know the 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 gods and the planets and the and you know 
physical objects, colors, substances on earth, things like that. Um, and then I've also, and then I've used, and then I discovered at some point, and here's where we can get into dream magic because there is an overlap, even though I don't really understand it yet. I started to discover that, uh, the art of memory interacts with divination in a really bizarre way. Um, I started playing with using the art of memory to memorize the meanings of tarot cards. And I did this, uh, Using tech, I mean, it does. It doesn't really matter. I, I used some of uh, Giordano Bruno's techniques from his uh, book Thirty One Seals. Thirty seals, probably thirty seals. <laughs> I don't know where thirty one is. Is that like Baskin Robbins or something? <laughs> <laughs> um, and after doing this, after sort of memory encoding, imaginally encoding uh, the meanings of tarot cards, I started to realize that while I was divining for people with cards, it's I did. I never needed to worry about which deck I was using. Every card sort of acted as like a, a shortcut or an index into, um, into like an imaginal space that I was kind of like inhabiting as I was divining. And, uh, that became very, that, that became very profound to me. I also began to use the art of memory to, um, memorize and create memory structures, uh, for astrology. And Bruno talks about this a little bit in one of his in one of his seals also, where he talks about uh, dividing the the sky up, like staring up at the night sky and dividing it into a memory palace. That's very difficult for me to do because I live in a city, and at night, if I'm super lucky, I can maybe see like eighty stars. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, although now Starlink's up there. <laughs> Are we allowed to say fuck Elon Musk on this show? <laughs> Let's not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Too late. I should have bleeped myself. <laughs> um, let's let's slow down for a minute because I feel like we're moving a touch too fast here. Um, Janus, did you have questions about what I had just said? Um, yeah, I want I want your in, yeah I want to hear what Janice has to say about the divination thing too. That's, that's kind of what I want to back up. I wanted to like maybe focus in on that for a minute and ask you what you th- uh, ask you to maybe elaborate and then talk about what you think about the maybe like why that is or what the machinery of the mind is yeah. in that moment, you know, cause the mind, not to be reductive, but the mind, the, the psychic machinery of the mind is an interesting thing. And I think that what you're doing mm-hmm. with divination and with memory, there, there is a correlation going on here, I think. Yeah. Uh, so, almost, so all the divination that I've done for other people has been, um, Sortilage, you know, cartomancy, and I mean, maybe not all, but 99% of it. So I'll talk from that experience. Uh, one thing that definitely happens as you grow in experience as a cartomancer is you build, um, you, you always kind of like build your own like internal casebook of, you know, combinations of cards and images on cards and what they mean and how you read them and you know, especially if you ever get feedback from querents, you might adjust the way your divination works. So you're always kind of relying on memory and on um, on an accumulated amount of experience. But but the way that we typically interact with our memory is is so it's so undisciplined. You know, we don't have uh, we don't have a way of always sort of like visually knowing how our memory works. 
pseudo Cicero, who is a man who is not Cicero, but wrote a book on the art of memory, uh, you know, back in the day, um, had this theory of memory, like, you know, a classical theory of memory that was that uh, everybody has uh, two types of memory that they have access to. There's your innate memory, like the memory, uh, the, the your capacity for memorization that you're sort of born with, you know. Uh, he, of course, wouldn't have had a concept of genetics, but we could probably say that, you know, your memory is probably a combination of like, you know, genetic markers and blah, 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 blah. Like, you know, some people are really, really good at just memorizing shit. They just remember it. They just remember things. Uh, and then the other type of memory is the artificial memory. That's what the art of memory is meant to sort of like train and enhance. And that is, it, it feels different as you use it more. It, it turns into a, into a, into, it turns your, your, your mind, your imaginal realm into a strange filing cabinet. And uh, the divination thing, like, in a way, some of it felt like there was a more purposeful and uh, directed kind of like index into experience and meaning or meaning and experience that I've had with the cards themselves. Uh, And in a way, sometimes it almost feels like your memory palace or your memory images uh, talk to you. So the interaction with, with your memory, with the the images, what do you mean by them talking to you? I don't mean it literally. I mean, it's sort of like if you, you know, depending on the images that you might use to encode the meanings of the cards, when you see them again or see them in different combinations, you are finding, you're finding relations that, that, uh, are otherwise hidden that are not always obvious, you know, um, from, from what I can tell, it's, it's only helped my ability to divine, but also it, it also feels a lot like stumbling around in the dark because I haven't really, I mean, honestly, tarot cards and the art of memory did not have much of an overlap. You know, the art of memory was dead by the time tarot cards came onto the scene. Um, when did the art of was, so when was the peak of the art of memory? The peak of the art of memory would have been probably 1500s. Okay. So, you know, their tarot cards, as far as we can tell, didn't really start getting used for divination until the 1700s. Mm. Um, and the art of memory died fast. You know, the printing press just kicked its butt. And then Martin Luther came along and the Protestant Reformation kicked its butt even harder. But putting that aside, you're saying that and using divination, it's evocative of areas of your memory palace? Yes, yes. Okay. And partially because, you know, I set it up that way on purpose. But I wasn't really, I was expecting only to have the memory palace as a method of uh, remembering the meanings of cards. Um, and I wasn't really expecting there to be such, you know, there, I wasn't expecting to gain more insight through using the memory palace with, with divination. Hmm. So this was an unexpected thing. It was unexpected, but I do think it makes sense. I think it makes sense because we know that, uh, we know that a lot of scrying techniques use the, use the imaginal faculty. Hmm. Um, and I know that scrying and sortilage, uh, are completely different types of divination, but they're still divination and they're still, you know, the, the imaginal realm, like your imaginal faculty has a link 
or or some sort of connection through the divine light or whatever to a greater and more fundamental realm. Okay. People use the tarot for path working, um, yeah. you know, and Kabbalistic tarot all the time. They do. So there are people who use the sort of confluence of the imaginal and of the uh, and the tarot. I mean, the tarot is literally, yeah. I mean, they're literally images. So it does make sense. You're using images. I mean, you could use, you could use symbolist art for the same thing. You could use. Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. You could use orthodox icons. for this Which, with, and orthodox icons are absolutely uh, meant to be used that way for sure. Yeah. I think um, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, I haven't really heard. I don't know if I've ever really heard a uh, person who's been doing a lot of path working, talking about using the tarot for divination later and having the, their path working experiences influence how they read the major arcana. But I would really, really love to hear from any tarot people who have had that experience. I think that would be amazing because I think that there's, there's a lot to explore there. Moving forward from that, um, the connection of the art of memory with dreams. Okay. I have some thoughts. <laughs> uh, I have some thoughts and I have some experiments that I've done and I have, uh, and I, and what I've done is I've generated a lot of questions, like a lot of questions. Let's start with some of those. Let's start with some of those okay. questions. Questions right. are always a great place to start. Questions, I agree. You know, agree. questions generate more questions, but questions generate answers too. That's true. Yeah. Um, in terms of like the art of memory and dreams, uh, that's that's a weird one. I, you know, dreams, man, it's, I, I'm, I'm not really uh, caught up in like the science of dreams. So I don't necessarily know what like modern scientists are saying about dreams. Just mostly I hear like a lot of pop science about dream stuff. Uh, but the thing that I always uh, sort of fall back on with that is like, there's the, I mean, I must've heard about this in the eighties or nineties, like the idea that like our dreams are how our uh, mind sort of like sorts through the experiences of the day and like files things away in our memory mm -hmm. cabinets or whatever. <sighs> I've been practicing the art of memory now for 20 years, and I'm not sure if this experience really predates uh, that or not. Like, I don't know if I have a really solid uh, memory of uh, childhood dreams or dreams before this, but uh, I have so many recurring buildings in my dreams, recurring structures, recurring temples and houses, uh, recurring locations, um, mm -hmm. that, and, 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 uh, very few of them. In, in fact, I don't think any of them are locations that I have, uh, created as memory palaces specifically, but because of how vivid the, the places are in the dreams, I remember, uh, the locations more than like the dreams that take place in them. And some of the locations I can like walk back and explore in my memory. I could probably use them as memory palaces. I don't know if that's mm -hmm. yeah. healthy, but I haven't done it, <laughs> but, uh, but it's, it's, it's a really weird experience. The, the experience of imaginal places. It, uh, 
I'm not really sure how how else to connect the art of memory with dreams in particular, but I do think that dream divination and uh, imaginal scrying have something in common. So in terms of dream divination, yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. You know, all right. What about moving towards a hermetic form of dream incubation? What do you think? What are some of your thoughts on that? Well, I've experimented with that a little bit. I've done it in a number of different ways. Um, I've tried uh, some of the dream incubation spells out of the PGM. And those have been... <sighs> they're, they're a really, really difficult form of divination. It takes, it takes a lot of practice, more, more than I've had, in order to get them to be uh, super useful. You know, you have to develop your own... A dream uh, dictionary, basically, mm-hmm. like what do different images mean in your dreams? And there's a there's a lot that you have to build towards. Uh, I've also used uh, the the dream talisman from uh, uh, three books of occult philosophy. Uh, Nina Griffin um, found an election for that a few years ago, so I created the talisman and have tried to use that for dreams. I've had about as much success with that as I have with PGM dream incubation, uh, meaning to say it gives me hella dreams uh it's really difficult to extract uh useful uh information from them okay so where have you had some successes with with some of these operations whether it's from the pgm or with that talisman like so we've talked you know you've said oh well you know i'm getting a lot of dreams but but what about let's talk about your successes i think probably the only success that i've had is a dream incubation that I did with, uh, Asclepios. Okay. Um, you know, I, uh, I created a, a podcast episode a couple of years ago. That is, a uh, an Asclepios dream incubation where I, you know, I've got like Susie Chang, um, reciting uh, the, uh, Orphic hymn to Asclepios. Um, I've got, uh, some, big drowsy music. I've got like recitations of different Asclepios things and sort of leading people in that, that sort of lead people into kind of an Asclepios dream state. Uh, and I've had some people respond that they've used it and had dreams, but again, like, you know, in the Abatons of Asclepios back in the old days, you would have like a professional dream interpreter who would come and hang out with you and be like, Oh yeah, you're here to dream about your, Mm -hmm pancreas or whatever your spleen uh and you know they would help you interpret your dream and what you were supposed to be doing uh and now we're just a bunch of amateurs with no actual asclepion around to to do the dreaming in um but i i went and had a this strange dream that told me to drink dr pepper (laughs) and uh and so I did, you know, I mean, I have never been a Dr. Pepper drinker, but um, uh, it didn't necessarily fix what was wrong with me, but it was a very nice palliative. Uh, and then a month later, I met a another occultist, um, uh, Nick Chappell. I'm sure you've heard of him. He's the guy who wrote, uh, what is it, the, the Kabbalion has new new clothes or whatever, like about how the Kabbalion isn't hermetic. Um, anyhow, I met him in person and it turns out he was a really heavy Dr. Pepper drinker. And um, it was just a weird coincidence. It it definitely drew us closer as friends, and we uh, we shared some Dr Pepper together. Um, 
a great commercial for Dr. Pepper. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would say that at this point, you know, I've been experimenting with dream incubation for a couple of years, and it is uh, it is the most difficult form of divination that I have attempted. Uh, it is It is the sort of thing where, like, when I notice synchronicities between things in my dreams and things in the real world, uh, they always feel like I, I, I can't tell if, the, if, if any of my dream incubation divinations have been successful yet. However, and this is a huge gap in my experiments at this point, uh, the PGM is filled with these um, yes-no dream divinations where you, uh, you know, the divination basically have things like, you know, if you go to sleep and you drink and you dream about a, an alligator, it's a yes. And if you dream about a, an oil lamp, it's a no or something of that nature. Mm-hmm. I have not tried any of those, uh, nor have I talked to anybody who has. I, I can't really tell how much dream incubation experimentation is going on out there, but um, it's uh, it's way more confusing and way more work than a tarot reading. <laughs> I think it comes down to, like you were saying earlier, um, just, just flat out discipline. Um, it's not yeah, super yeah. complicated, especially with those PGM spells where it's like yeah if you dream of water then it's a yes if you dream of fire it's a no or right. or whatever um i think you just have to put in the work uh, for you that do. particular kind of operation i mean i don't know that it's that hard well um, it's hard in some sense right uh mm-hmm. dream divination dream incubation um you know usually involves like a little bit of purification and a little bit of mm-hmm. Uh, ritual preparation and like clean sheets and you know um sure and stuff like that so there's there's always like a little bit of preparation which uh and then you know it takes basically your night of sleep you have to like wake up and record dreams when you have them you have to you know so it's it is difficult you can't really do it every night Mm -hmm. uh because you do need to actually get like real sleep too Mm -hmm. right but every once in a while yeah I, i don't if you if you put in the work to kind of get to that point, like you were saying, like putting together like a, a dream dictionary, so to speak, yeah. like where you have like certain items or objects that mean certain things and really kind of drilling that home. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I know it sounds like work, but I, it is work. I don't know that it would be prohibitive. I mean, as far as the, as being like an extreme amount of work, you know, you just have to really put in some effort yeah yeah, yeah i believe that it's the sort of thing that is you know it's a it's an effort that takes place over years like you have to record your dreams and then what happens and then you have yeah. to start to see if there are correlations between symbols in your dreams and things that happen in the real world um and i haven't really gone through that effort uh i know that i know that it would be worthwhile but um did I mention at the beginning of this episode that I'm kind of lazy? <laughs> <laughs> All right, let me talk about getting started with with dream magic, but because I do think that it is it is one of these things that like people do need to be experimenting more with. Like we need we need like sort of a a crowdsourcing of occultists trying out some of the dream magic stuff. Um, the way that I first got started with it was in uh, Stephen Skinner's book on you know his big yellow one one of the big yellow ones, uh, techniques of Greco Egyptian magic. He sort of charts out in, uh, in one of his chapters, um, all of the PGM, um, spells on, uh, visions and dream revelation. And, uh, so the first thing I did was I went through the PGM and myself for, 
you know, at least the, the spells that he outlined. And I kind of made a list of all the different PGM spells, how difficult they would be to pull off, uh, you know, the, the amount of work that's required, you know, like the, you know, if there are days of purification, if there are special amulets that are needed, if there's, you know, special ritual ingredients that'd be hard to get. Uh, so I, I tried that first. Um, the, the next thing I did, uh, was I tried some out, you know, I tried the dream thing. Um, it's really, really important to keep a dream journal for this stuff. Um, and I've seen tons and tons of different, um, methods out there for, uh, effectively recording your dreams. Um, for me, the one that's the most effective is I just have to keep a notebook and a pencil, uh, by my bed so that I can wake up so that when I do wake up in the middle of the night, I can just reach over and start writing. Uh, I've talked to, a couple of people, you know, I mean, keeping dream journals is pretty common among occultists and diviners. Um, and a lot of people use like the, the, the voice notes app on their phone and they record stuff. And then the next day they like transcribe their notes. Um, so keeping track of that stuff is, is pretty important. Um, a lot of the dream magic has to do with uh, being in a state of ritual purity when you go to bed. And this includes usually like ritual cleansing, uh, having new bedding. Um, sometimes there are, there's a ritual that you have to perform. And then uh, I, I actually, I really like these ones where you basically like perform this ritual. It's easy because you can kind of do most of that stuff at your altar, go to your bedroom, uh, light some incense and maybe a candle uh, and go to sleep and you don't talk to anybody about anything between the time of the ritual and the time you go to sleep. Um, I really like those ones. I know that they can be more difficult if you, in fact, I'm not sure if you can do dream divination if there's somebody else in your bed. So that's another thing to mm. uh, experiment with. I haven't tried that yet. <laughs> um, and then, uh, so that was sort of the first thing I did was going through the PGM and trying some of those rituals. Uh, the next thing I did was, the astrological talisman from Agrippa. Um, he has a dream uh, talisman. Oh God, I it's somewhere in book two, I think. But um, it's a tal. It's a it's a solar talisman, or and or a solar yeah astrological talisman. Um, I guess I kind of interpreted it as uh, uh, being sort of like a an appeal to Apollo for an Oracle, you know, Apollo was used for oracles quite often in the old days. Um, and so, uh, I made one of those and, uh, used that. It seemed to work pretty well as sort of like a bit of a shortcut. Like you didn't need as much ritual and as much preparation and you would still get good dreams, but the dreams were less useful. I felt like the times that I used it, the dreams that I had were, they, they offered fewer insights. So that might just be a question of practice or a question of me doing something wrong. It's difficult to say. Yeah, and then the third one, the one that, that I think has been uh, the most interesting to me is this question of the uh, Asclepian dreams. You know, the Asclepius was... Um, at least from what I can tell, like his, the, his dream temples were, you know, the most popular way to interact with them for, you know, centuries or at least a century. And, um, and so finding ways to experiment with that, I think are really important. I don't know that we have any, uh, extant rituals dealing with 
um, Dream Incubation and Asclepius, which is why I just sort of like made one up and turned it into a podcast episode. Um, but to me, that seemed like a really good way to experiment. I think, though, you know, it's tricky to, you know, Asclepius is a god of who, who deals with healing and medicine. Uh, I would not necessarily rely on dream divination over a doctor, but who knows? Maybe there are useful things that can come out of dreams when it comes to healing. I think that there's a lot to experiment with there and a lot of, uh, a lot of leeway. Do you make, so, you, you know, it seems like you're pretty focused on using um, images. Yeah. In magic, right? Mm-hmm. So where do where where do your sources for some of these images come from? I use I use the Picatrix uh, quite a bit, um, but I also have found inspiration for images in um, more classical sources, uh, and even in um, other Renaissance stuff dealing with like the art of memory. You know, there are big catalogs of images in uh, Bruno's memory books. There's a uh, a pretty good variety of images in the Picatrix and uh, you know, some of the other astrological magic books. I have used dreams as sources for images. Actually Uh, the first really serious astrological talisman I did was a um, talisman to Venus. Mm. Did it work? Oh yeah. I use it. It's, 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 I think the, one of the best pieces of astrological magic I've ever done. Wow. Um, so what so what happened? Let's start from the beginning, go through everything you did, and then uh, get to the effect that you had. Okay, okay. Well, it was still pretty early on when people were talking about astrological magic and figuring stuff out. And, you know, it was one of the first elections that I did. I have looked back on it once or twice, and I've been like, oh boy, I don't know if I should have used that election. But it was uh, Venus's degree of exaltation in, um, where is that, Libra? No, shit. You know, wherever Venus is exalted. Um, Pisces? Pisces? Is it Pisces? Yeah, mm-hmm. I think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So the, but the election involved Venus being in her degree of exaltation. Uh, and so I was sort of following the Agrippa or the Picatrix recipe for creating the image. But then I was sort of mixing in stuff that I'd learned about planetary talismans from um, both Golden Dawn and Agrippa. So I had like, uh, I used... Agrippa's method for calculating spirit names and use the election to sort of calculate a spirit name. Then I used the magic square of Venus to design a sigil for the spirit using the name that I calculated. So then I had, uh, you know, like the, the angel of Venus and the intelligence of Venus and the spirit name that I'd calculated along with all these sigils that I put on one side of a talisman and then the image that I created for Venus on the other side, which was just straight out of the Picatrix, you know, a woman with long hair, topless with a, a comb in one hand and an apple in one hand. There's a couple images. I think that's the one I used. Um mm-hmm. But it was a long process. You know, I I, uh, I didn't have copper or anything like that. So I used green Sculpey to create the uh, talisman itself. And one of the things that was kind of amazing about it is, so I, I kind of left it so that I would finish building the talisman and then do a consecration ritual over it during the moment of the exaltation. 
Mm. And the rest of the construction I did during the planetary hour of Venus, like the day before. Mm. And that night I had a dream that brought to me a crystal clear image of Venus. Really? Yes. Like, like maybe the, maybe the spirit that I named on the talisman, maybe, uh, but, but an image that uh, has stuck with me uh, associated with the talisman ever since. Um, and an image that I kept in my, in my, in my imaginal mind, in my imaginal faculty as I did the consecration ritual so that I felt that as I was doing the consecration, I was consecrating the image and the physical talisman, uh, all at once. Interesting. Um, are you comfortable sharing what that image was or would you prefer to keep that to yourself? Uh, I need to keep that to myself, but, um, but it's been remarkable because the image has ended up being to me a representation of the spirit that, that was conjured into the talisman and has ended up sort of fulfilling the role of the talisman. It's so I've, I walked away from that with this sort of idea about maybe creating images without physical talismans. And I've done that a little bit. Um, I have created a Mars image that I consecrated uh, during a Mars election that had no physical talisman that uh, has also worked. Um, so just an image in your imaginal. Yeah. Yeah. Image only uh, oh. and okay. no physical portion. Hmm. Interesting. Uh yeah, and it, but then at the yeah, and I, you know, uh, I have created a good number of astrological talismans. Some of them have been successful, and some of them haven't. Some of them have been on paper. Some of them have been on more permanent things, um, which I think is sort of a, an experience that's sort of typical for astrological magicians. You know, the, a lot of uh, figuring out why elections work and what elections work for individual uh, practitioners is sort of a uh, also a learning experience, which requires lots of cataloging and experimentation and success and failure. Sure. Um, so it's, it's kind of funny that I've had, uh, you know, imaginal only talismans that have been more effective than some of the physical ones that I've created. Uh, but the ones that have been the most effective have always been where there is uh, both an imaginal image and a physical image that work together and correspond with each other. Um, and so I have sort of, felt through that experience that the the imaginal portion of uh of any sort of magical operation should just never be neglected uh which i think the picatrix tries to tell us you know when it says Mm -hmm. you know neglect not the moon the moon governs the astral realm the realm where our imagination dwells Um, it is basically the link between you know the divine light and the, and the, and the material realm. Mm. So if one of our listeners wanted to get some tips from Eric on how to construct their own image based talisman, what would the steps that you recommend in a very clear and systematic way be for them? I would say the first thing to do. Whoa, whoa, whoa. One more thing. Oh, Okay, one more thing. Um, also, would it does it have to be astrological? Can they make an image talisman that does not have an astrological 
election or does it have to be astrological? So those I realize those are two questions, but maybe you can weave them together in your adroit manner. Yes. Uh, all right. Well, let's start with um, a ritual such as uh, the opening of the mouth for statues, right? The opening of the mouth uh, ritual, for listeners who don't know, this is the way that um, that statues were, uh, or I mean, I guess are and sold. I don't know how many opening of the mouth rituals we have that are really, really old, but um, but it's basically how statues of gods or saints or whatever can be ensouled and sort of like embody the presence of the the spirit that they're associated with the opening of the mouth ritual is an, is a perfect place to use an image you create an image of uh of the deity or saint that you are um uh using to inhabit the statue and um, and you build it and you build it and you build it and you make it as realistic as possible. Um, I know a lot of people who have done uh, golden dawn style magic have, uh, have used like the practice of adopting a God form, which is absolutely the sort of image magic that I'm talking about, except that you like, you know, step into it instead of putting it in something else. But with an opening of the mouth ritual, you would create the God form and put it into the statue while you are ensouling it. The, that image would be an image then of the portion of the soul of the deity that is inhabiting the statue. Um, and so that would be, I think, an example of a place where you wouldn't necessarily need to use astrological talismans to um, do this form of image magic. Another place that I use image magic like that is with uh, chaos magic sigils mm. or the creation of servitors using chaos magic techniques. Both of those are excellent areas for um, image magic. Um, servitors in particular, I think, are basically made for image magic. And I think that you have a lot of baby chaos magicians out there who accidentally stumble upon these techniques and end up uh, writing on, you know, Tumblr about uh, their tulpas and stuff. <laughs> um, so if I were going to go step by step, I mean, honestly, think, you're, a, think, think like you're talking to Dominic, like you're talking to a total idiot. <laughs> But I don't think of Dominic as a total idiot. I have a lot of respect for Dominic. <laughs> Good, that makes um, one of us. But just kidding, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. Um, <laughs> wow, you really put up with a lot of abuse. We haven't. We have not gone off the rails like this in a long time. <laughs> like you're bringing out something in Janus, <laughs> which rhymes with anus, um, that we haven't seen in a while. There's this there's this character. Um, I don't recommend doing image magic with him, but there's a fascinating, fascinating German trickster character. He's popular in Germany, um, or was popular in Germany, like in the Middle Ages and probably well after. Um, called the uh, Eulenspiegel, uh, and Eulenspiegel means Eulenspiegel means owl mirror, which is really cool, you know, because you have the, the image mm -hmm. of the owl in the mirror. And he's this trickster figure, and he's an archetypal trickster. So, I mean, he's dressed as a jester, and he's constantly engaging in these insane, wild behaviors, like going 
going into mm-hmm. an inn and like shitting on the table and then serving the shit as food to somebody and things like that. Just really insane. And I think I've seen Dom do that. That's my point. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I oh, see. You're getting into this now, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> you're getting pulled into the madness. Ah. Oh. <laughs> All right. Let's see. Where where were we? Uh, step by step, how to do it. Okay. So, um, creating a simple uh, sigil with an image attached is uh, is also something that'd be very very possible. So, uh, you could use just the Austin uh, Austin Osmond uh, spar method of creating a sigil. Um, and then alongside it, you know, of course, <laughs> one of the one of the places that this will uh, disagree with chaos magic is, you know, a lot, a lot of uh, chaos magicians will tell you that a sigil will only work if you like forget that it exists or forget what it's supposed to do. But if you put a lot of work into creating the image and really bringing the image to life, there's very little chance that you will actually forget what it's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but the method of charging the sigil would then involve creating an image that goes along with the meaning of the sigil, the purpose of the sigil, and sort of embedding it imaginally into the sigil itself. Um, you know, uh, we have that sort of thing kind of in reverse already with like goetic demons, where we have uh, a sigil for a spirit, but we also have like the image that goes along Another with it. Another useful idea concept could be a talismatic image. Yeah, can you explain what you mean by that? So a talismatic image would be, um, you have the name of a, usually, typically, it's a spirit, an angel, something like that. Mm -hmm. And each of the letters, say in Hebrew, but you could also do it with Greek, has has different things associated with it, right? Like, so, 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 you know, you say you have like, ox goad, and fish, and hook and uh ox or that and camel. camel yeah camel so then you create an image yeah. with all those things in it you can either create a picture mm-hmm. with with all those elements or you could create a single figure made up of like with with say like you know like a fish body and a camel's head with an ox goat around its neck um mm-hmm. you know uh-huh, what i mean uh-huh. and that's yeah, I know exactly what you mean. You have you have stumbled upon um, a an ancient memory technique uh, that was written about by monks in the ninth century. No, I mean it was that's actually an even older memory technique. Um, yeah, when you abstract it away enough, uh, alphabets themselves are memory images, and um, and one of the one of the techniques in the art of memory does, or actually many of the techniques do involve sort of like creating your own memory alphabets, uh, which can be really useful in creating um, composite images like that. Uh, and that's one of the things that like Bruno's lists are really good for. Uh, I think he has one of his lists in um, uh, De Umbris Idearum, which is usually translated as uh, on the art of memory. There are a couple translations of that available. Um, Including one by Scott Gosnell, who's a who's a amazing thinker and fun dude. Um, so yeah, using you, yeah, that that's a that's absolutely something you could do. You could um, if you created a memory uh, alphabet ahead of time, like associating letters with it, with specific images. It doesn't necessarily have to be sort of the traditional stuff like a ox, b house, that sort of thing. It could be something of your very own. Um, and in fact, one of the one of the things that I have done with that is I have a 
memory alphabet that I use when uh, memorizing Masonic ritual, where each of the letters of the alphabet is associated with a Masonic symbol or a Masonic character. Um, because I've found, especially with any sort of magical work, it helps to stay in theme. And please, if you're a Freemason, do not yell at me for associating Freemasonry with magic. Uh, but you know, the techniques are similar and the, the memory techniques are very similar. Um, so yeah, like, you know, if you are a, if you're a, a PGM, uh, magician, you should create a memory alphabet associated with the Greek alphabet. If you're doing Kabbalistic stuff, create a memory alphabet associated with the Hebrew alphabet, that sort of thing. And those can be used specifically to create images for, uh, spirits and uh, and I mean, you could do it with the bind rune. Um, you know what I mean. You could do it with the bind rune. You yeah. get, you know, Berkano. You have a birch tree. Uru have an mm-hmm. ox. You know mm-hmm. what I mean. So a Sitwell. Yeah. You have the sun. So you put those together into a visual image that you visualize along with the bind rune. But so then, so basically, you created this yeah. image one way or another. How do you energize it though? I mean, we all. Well, not we all, but, you know, many of us who are older are familiar with the classic chaos magic tactic of uh, masturbation and orgasm. So we can pass over. Mm-hmm. Well, what are some of the other techniques you can use to energize one of these images animating it? Uh, usually when I, I, I don't usually use the masturbation technique when I'm doing um, sigil charging. I usually uh, create a ritual of my own. But um, because I got started with uh, Donald Michael Craig. Uh, visualization techniques were kind of like hammered into me pretty early on. So I usually use visualization techniques, you know, imagination, you know, my, my imaginal faculty to first spend some time meditating on the image itself, creating it so that it feels real and, um, and as detailed and lifelike as possible in my imagination. Uh, one uh, secret. I don't think that this is necessarily something that everybody will have trouble with, but you know, remember to let them move. Uh, your imaginal, your Im- your imaginary images are not static yeah. pictures. They should be allowed to move and and act and be their own thing. But you then uh, uh, visualize it as sort of like merging with or being a part of the physical sigil itself. Uh, for me, it helps a lot to have some sort of ritual that goes along with that. I I almost almost every ritual I do, even if it's not astrological is somehow tied to some kind of planetary magic thing. So I always have, you know, incense and candles and stuff that I associate with the task at hand with the magical task that I'm trying to accomplish. So, uh, I know that's going to be different for everybody, but that's what I do. Um, and I think that's, so th- those two techniques, both the opening of the mouth and the associating of, uh, and the creation of images to go along with sigils are really, really good ways to get started I think astrological uh, magicians who are already working with talismans have probably already stumbled across a lot of the secrets of image magic um, associated as at least associated with talismans that they're creating for themselves or people around them. But I think that if you, uh, for instance, are buying astrological talismans from magicians who have created them and selling or selling them online, uh, you should, you should definitely consider Reconsecrating them with with uh, imaginal creations of your own, I think that might be useful. Cool, yeah, Eric. So I want to get your thoughts on the importance of focus and concentration too, because you you just mentioned the fact that your your images should be allowed to move 
um, and kind mm-hmm. of live. But th- that takes a sort of capacity for for focus and being able to stay kind of in the moment with with that image. Oftentimes, I think, yeah, you know, if you if you lack that focus, you're you're seeing images. If you're doing a vis- visualization, for instance, you're seeing images in like a super slow kind of stop motion kind of manner where yeah. rather than just kind of a continuous living kind of mm-hmm. picture, if that makes sense, you feel like that's it does. important. I, I think that is important. I think, um, I think as with, uh, any skill, it, it takes practice and it takes, um, okay. This is going to make me sound extra nerdy. Where, where's Janus? He's going to want to hear this. Oh, he's, uh, <laughs> he's charging a sigil right now in the bathroom. Uh Oh, <laughs> um we can wait if you want no 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 i i'll i'll talk about this um i kind of associate uh visualization and 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 learning how to learning how to use the imagination uh with um learning math uh at least for me i know that a lot of people have have enormous amounts of difficulty with math but for me i was told all my life that math was Mm -hmm. hard you know, basically it was, it was all, it was Barbie's fault. You know, Barbie was always on TV saying like, math is hard. Um, and when I took math classes and I, I went in there with this idea, like, oh my God, this is going to be so difficult. This is going to be so hard. And then you get in there and you like, you learn the technique and you're like, this is it. Yeah. This is what everybody was afraid of. This is what everybody was telling me was going to be impossible. I feel like imagination is the same way. I I read online a lot of accounts of people who struggle with visualization. And I think a lot of it is because they're, they're not really like we, we live so embedded in the material world and we exist in this um, society that has this like material first worldview that is just hammered into us from birth. You know, we, we aren't used to trusting our mind's eye. We aren't used to trusting our imagination to, to do its thing. Um, so I've found that a lot of the times as I have moved forward with the ability to visualize and the ability to use the imagination, a lot of it comes down to kind of like just trusting my imagination yeah. to do the work once it's got the information. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if, if, uh, if I want to imagine an apple, uh, I know what the hell an apple looks like. I don't have to sit there and focus on it until the apple is perfectly perfect because the apple will be there you know you know how an apple smells and how an apple tastes and what color it is and how weird the skin feels and all that kind of stuff um so it's not necessarily you know all of that stuff is already present in your innate memory and you can just let that percolate up Mm. and and fill the imaginal space that it's supposed to be filling um and i found i found that uh for me at least a lot of it was uh setting it in motion and letting it do its own thing without trying to force yeah, everything. Yeah. But, but it is again, a question of practice and, and sticking with it. You have to just play with it. Uh, it's way easier when you start to realize that, you know, your imagination gives you basically the power of a God in your own mind and you can just do whatever you want with it. And, you know, it, when you turn it into more, uh, play than 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 chore i think that helps a lot i mean it's it's common in the esoteric buddhist tradition in tibet and in japan to create you know images you're describing mm-hmm. essentially a very similar process to what to what's used in esoteric buddhism yeah because when we speak about european 
traditions of magic. You know, you're dealing with the continental, you're dealing with the northern, um, you're dealing with the Mediterranean, and then you're dealing with the Eastern European. There, there's different approaches in each, but there's also pan-European modalities as well. And then, but in the southern, you know, in the Mediterranean tradition, uh, visualization really isn't something that is uh, considered necessary. It, the power is typically in the vibrations of the sound, in in the images that are created by the hand, whether it's whether it's a statue carved out of wood, or um, uh, you know any number of images. The idea, I think, that is is that the power is coming from the divinities rather than the rather than the formative image making faculty of the suke and so i think it's interesting that mm -hmm. you're with per perhaps just through your own magical development finding an affinity for the 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 image imagination the power of the imagination now i think that that's informed mm -hmm. and inspired by renaissance approaches as well but i do think it's interesting if you think about the contrast cuz really you if you look at many ancient source, sources, whether we're looking at, I don't know, I, I I love the PGM, but I hate to mention the PGM because of all of the half-wits on Facebook. But <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe you need to get off Facebook. <laughs> maybe I do. That's true. But I have people calling me like on Facebook Messenger, leaving messages where they're like sobbing and crying and screaming, asking me to not get off every time I say I'm going to get off Facebook. <laughs> no, but seriously, wow. I didn't realize. <laughs> I didn't realize we were dealing with the Taylor Swift of Facebook here. <laughs> I'm the cabaret vocal uh, record yeah. of the Taylor Swift of Facebook. Um, <laughs> So here's the here's the thing about that though, is that we know that um, or sorry I'm not going to say that we know I, I feel like we've got pretty good evidence uh, you know um, such as like the stuff that Yohan uh, Culliano mapped out in his book uh, Eros and Magic in the Renaissance of um, of how the approach to imagination uh, changed in the Western world uh, to the point where like it it was it was it was taken for granted. You know, imagination was a, an imaginal experience of the world or an experience of the world where the line between um, the imaginal and the and the material was was hazy was kind of like the the default mode, um, at least for, you know, maybe four to six hundred years leading up to the Protestant Reformation. So when so when a lot of times we see Renaissance texts and maybe even stuff older than that, uh, talking about, you know, talking about uh, magical techniques, I think that the imaginal side of it was probably taken for granted. Mm -hmm. It didn't need to be explicitly spelled out. And we do have we do have some evidence of this in in earlier mystical texts, um, such as like uh uh, Augustine talking about his um, encounters with God in the gardens of memory or uh, mystical experiences that seem to be uh, mapped out as memory images in uh, this, uh, the Sefer HaZohar or uh, Teresa of Aguila's, you know, uh, crystal palaces or things like that. Like we have, we have these images that seem to, uh, blur the difference between vision and imagination and the material 
and the divine in in sort of like some really interesting ways. And some sometimes it's it's one of those things where like if you start to get familiar with the language, you come across it in really strange places. Uh, most of the examples that I have are things that have been pointed out by by scholars, but also, you know, uh, I know how nerdy the two of you are. I know that sometimes you like to pick up a super old book and read through it and be like, oh yeah, this is my magic. But But you'll come across stuff every once in a while where you're like, hold on a second, and a demon just like walked up and started talking to him? Like, how is that possibly a thing? Man, a great example that I read recently was uh, a book about the Ars Notoria. It was a it was a scholarly book, but somebody was sort of like analyzing like one of these texts about this monk that had been practicing with the Ars Notoria and the sort of like imaginal uh, experiences he had that sort of began with dreams and ended up being sort of these almost like physical visions of you know demons and Jesus and things like that. Like we we know that um, we know that the imaginal that the imaginal experience bled over into the material experience for people who existed in, in a, in a pre enlightenment Europe, Mm -hmm. at least. So I'm not sure that I'm innovating as much as I am afraid that I am most of the time. You're less innovation, more excavation. I think that's what, I think that's what I'm doing. It's, you know, I'm not enough of a scholar to prove it. I mean, Plato said all knowledge is remembering. Yes, anamnesis. It is one of my favorite things from Plato. So it's like a gnosis. Because if you trace yeah. memory yeah. back far enough, you reach God. Yeah, and Plotinus also talked about um, talked about that. Um, the The theory of remem- of knowledge being remembering is beautiful. Um, uh, I believe this is in Phaedrus, but I I. I'm super happy to be wrong about this, but basically um, Plato talks or, you know, he has Socrates talk about uh, the fact that like no new knowledge is actually being created. All no- all things that are available to know uh, already exist mm-hmm. or are already part of the divine plan or are already um, there. Our separation from the divine, like when we incarnate into the material world is so traumatic that our soul is blocked off from the divine, um, you know, omniscience. And, um, the act of remembering is act or the act of knowing is actually, uh, our soul remembering. It's sort of like the, the higher form of our, of our accessible memory. And that represents sort of like our soul gaining more access to the divine. Uh, and this, this, uh, concept actually, uh, fed directly into the concept of, you know, universal knowledge in the Renaissance, which has a much cooler, uh, Latin or Greek name that is escaping me at the moment. Omni, no, Pan-Sophia, Pan-Sophia. That's what it is. Um, sort of like the fact, the, the belief that one person could fit all knowledge in their mind and thus sort of achieve a level of, um, you know, renaissance well, divinity this is of kind thing. of the origin of the idea of renaissance scholasticism but if you really consider it carefully mm-hmm. i think it's not so much that one person can fit all knowledge into their mind but it's more i think akin to what hermes says in the hermetica about expanding your soul to the size of the universe expanding yeah. your 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 soul meaning suge uh, to mm-hmm. to the size of the universe, to 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 the size of God, and so it's not so much fitting it into your uh, contracted um, relative mind, so much as making yourself equal to God. 
and then mm-hmm. all knowledge yeah. is accessible yeah. to you because you've reached the the macrocosmic state of awareness. Right, right. And I can't remember if that was a CH ten or twelve. Yeah. I think where he has that bit in there. Yeah, and that was definitely something that really spurred on um, some of the art of memory practitioners in the Renaissance. You know, there was. Um, I'm not sure that they necessarily had the right approach, but there were attempts at creating um, memory palaces that could be catalogs of everything. Oh yeah, and yeah, yeah. that seems seems like the wrong way to go about it, but it was impressive. Okay, so I think an interesting sort of dovetail of what we've been talking about, what you've been talking about, is the um, uh, hypnerotomachia polyphily. The hypnerotomachia polyphily. Oh my God. The hypnerotomachia. <laughs> yeah, yes. I got you. Wrong. Okay, I'm not going to talk. This is one of Eric's. I am not going to talk about this things. for an hour. No, just talk it up. Talk it, it up. Talk it up. Talk it up. <laughs> the hypnerotomachia polyphily is, uh, is, is literally a, a dream. Okay, I mean, for those in the audience who don't know what it is, this was a book published in 1499 in Venice by Aldus Manutius, uh, probably written by the uh, monk whose name I can't remember at the moment. Um, but the book, it, its title probably means The Strife of Love in a Dream or Polyphilo's uh, Love in a Dream. And it is uh, written in this weird pigeon of like six languages. So you had to know how to speak like six languages in order to read it. Uh, But the book itself is this fantastical, uh, intimately detailed, uh, imaginal voyage through this bizarre pagan dream realm filled with just the most amazing descriptions of architecture and beings and flora and fauna and... Um, and emotion and experience. It's just, it's gorgeous. It is, uh, it is one of the most delicious books that has ever yep. been written. Um, yeah, I, 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 I can talk it up a lot, but, uh, that's probably enough that I, I have probably talked it up enough already. Um, I believe that the hypnerotomachia was, um, written as an imaginal memory journey intended to be sort of encoded in the mind as you read it. Okay. I know that it was extremely influential. Uh, there's, uh, there's a theory. Jocelyn Godwin theorizes that, uh, the third of the Rosicrucian tracts, the, uh, Kimisha Hochzeit was, um, basically just the hypnerotomachia dumbed down. Um, I think also that the early English, uh, Royal arch degree in Freemasonry was, uh, was a similar thing, sort of a dumbing down of the hypnerotomachia or possibly of, uh, the Rosicrucian tract, the chemical, but it's yeah, the chemical. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Oh, I'm sorry. I said it in German. Chemical wedding. The chemical wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz. Now, what's interesting Uh, to just briefly interject is it's kind of touching on everything you've discussed so far. Number one, it's talking about the dream aspect. Number two, it's talking about the sort of Renaissance image magic aspect. And then the third aspect is Venus, who's very present 
in this text, as she is also in the chemical oh, yeah. wedding, you know, Dame Venus is really the the conductress. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and and uh, and the Hypnorotomachia is a love story. You know, I mean, it's absolutely everything that happens in there happens because of the bonds of love, like drawing people together, and that that whole theory of love. I I mentioned this you know, an hour ago or whatever. Uh, yeah. The whole theory of like love sort of being like the binding thing between uh, the image and what it represents or the image and what it pulls divine light from it. It's just sort of uh, reflected and compounded in a text like the Hypnotomachia. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I'm glad that you brought it up. I, uh, I, I think about that book frequently. It is, it is, it is dear to my heart. I, I really love it. Can you talk a little bit on it? How, it's, why it's dear, dear to your heart? Like, what what is what is it about this book that you love so much, and how does it relate to your practice? Um, I don't necessarily concretely relate it to my practice as much as I use it as a book to kind of like sink into and kind of live in. You know, you can open it up and you can read it, and you can walk along with uh, uh, Polyphile on his on his journey and just just have the experiences that he's having um the way that the book is uh written you can you can you can create you know like to the meter you know to the centimeter sort of like the areas that polyphily is experiencing the things that he's seeing and exploring and like the you know everything that he everything that he experiences you can imagine along with him very clearly because of the way the book is done uh, another book that has that effect for me is a is a more modern one, uh, "Invisible Cities" by Italo Calvino. Mm-hmm. Again, it's a it's a book where this one is a little different in that it's still a book that is meant to um, uh, invoke images in the reader's mind, but the images are presented in a sort of like strongly metaphorical sense, and the book itself. Uh, as it goes along, sort of reveals that the two main characters, um, uh, Kublai Khan and uh, uh, Marco Polo, uh, aren't even speaking the same language, but that the images are like passing between them just through like the power of communication. Well, and that's <laughs> interesting too, because really these images are a means for us to communicate with the spirits that are in the Mundus Imaginalis, the demonic realm. Yeah. You, they may, they may or may not understand our language or maybe even when we're using verbal language for them, it's perceived visually so that when we use the visual language, a language of images, we are entering into that um, medial space and using a language that is universal rather than particular. Yes, absolutely. That is my thesis and, um, and I implanted it in, in Janus using an image. Or, or (laughs) no, I, well, right, and it brings to mind, you know, hieroglyphics, obviously. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I really do believe, though, I, I really think that um, when you kind of, like, follow these things to their logical conclusion, you discover that alphabets are are mnemonic devices that were originally images, and, you know, hieroglyphs just didn't change as quickly. I mean, and it's amazing to me because this book is relatively unknown to most people, yet it is such an incredible work historically even but when we talk about imagination and dreams and magic and the influence perhaps on rosicrucianism and and, and mm-hmm. all of that it's very it's just 
it's inevitable that you're going to come across at least a mention of it. And if you examine it, it just has so many levels to it. But again, um, this goes back to Venus, right? Like we have Venus in this, yeah. we have Venus in, in the chemical wedding. Yeah, we have Venus as the, the mother of Eros, you know, I mean, Eros being the, the binding force that, that Bruno talks about. Like when we're talking, even, even when we're talking about um, late Platonism, you know, so-called Neoplatonism, mm -hmm. we have, um, we have, you know, Proclus elevates Venus to essentially the status of the world's soul. And she becomes more than just an image of even eros but literally the the sort of transcendental the transcendental unity of all things is is in is in is in this uh cosmic form of venus you know mm -hmm. and then you have eros as the daemon magnus who is both sort of god and demon and if you think about the the way that love affects us it exalts us to the most sublime heights but can also devastate us and make us fall like the angels into the most abysmal depths of hellish suffering. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when Bruno talks about it, he sort of uses these examples of, um, you know, uh, uh, Eros is what, uh, what binds the planets together and keeps them close. But at the same time, it, it drives them apart. Like you don't want too much Eros from the sun or you're going to get a little toasty. But it's yeah, so it's sort of a it's sort of a binder and a limiter. It's it's interesting how that sort of and I and they, you know this we're we're leaping back and forth across millennia here, but uh, but I, I'm just sort of reminded again how interesting it is that there were there were these there were these occult theories of of things that were eventually you know ex explained by gravity and conservation momentum and angular momentum and that sort of crap. But um, yeah. But ultimately you could say those are expressions of the principles that, that, mm -hmm. that were perceived by these seers. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Oh, I, I, I totally agree. So for listeners who want to learn more about all these topics that we've been talking about, especially just, just now, I recommend um, drugs, <laughs> do lots of drugs <laughs> <laughs> and uh you're all set yeah, yeah no but seriously eric uh covers these topics pretty extensively on his podcast the arnomancy podcast mm -hmm. um which is great you've had a lot of awesome guests on there um highly recommend it so where where can people find what you're doing because we are running a little bit long really we've only been um, recording for three hours have we been recording <laughs> right. for three hours right <laughs> close yeah. to it yeah i thought i thought joseph was our record holder but eric's oh man decided to give him a run for his money uh well you're gonna so yeah where can people find you because you've got a lot of fascinating ideas and a lot of educated educated ideas and and thoughts and just a lot of fascinating guests like i said on your show so so tell us a little bit about where can pe people can find you and what you have to offer. Um, almost all of the cool uh, stuff that I have uh, on this on this topic is um, is on arnemancy.com, A-R-N-E-M-A-N-C-Y.com. Um, that's where I've got my podcast, where I've got lots of blog posts. Uh, the Art of Memory stuff in particular bleeds over a lot into the work that I've done on Freemasonry. You can just google my name and put freemason at the end and you'll get 
stuff there, but oh, most of it's in, in print and not um, available on the internet. And then, yeah, I would say that in my podcast in particular, I have uh, three or four episodes about the Hypnorotomachia polyphily that I've done. Um, some of them with some just like really profound thinkers who have sort of explored uh, the way the Hypnorotomachia polyphily was actually used by uh, people at the time. Um, and then also sort of like expanding that into this uh, this concept of sort of like multimedia immersive imaginal landscapes that are sort of presented in Renaissance texts. Uh, mm-hmm. I also have a whole series on Agrippa's three books of occult philosophy, and I dive way more into Agrippa's approach to divine light in that. And you can find that at arnamancy.com slash Agrippa. There's like nine episodes there. Uh, and then also I have um, a pretty good number of episodes where I interview uh, Scott Gosnell, who has uh, translated um, more Giordano Bruno than possibly anybody else alive. And it probably hasn't driven him too insane. He's, he's very erudite and ha- he's got a much different approach or take on Bruno than I do sometimes. So we don't always... Uh, agree, and that's probably fun to listen to too. Um, so that's yeah. those are the things that I would advise. There's a search on my website, so you can just search for stuff. I try to make it easy to find. Cool, cool. And so if it was for someone who wanted to start, because we did talk about the art of memory quite a bit, um, where would someone start? Um, I think that? the there are two places that I would start. Uh, one, you can get on um, YouTube and search for like uh, Art of Memory or Memory Palace techniques. There's a huge community of people who do it competitively now, uh, but their mm-hmm. introductory tutorials are amazing, and they can they can oh, get cool. you up and running really, really quickly. Um, awesome. If you want to expand on that, John Michael Greer does have his... Uh, th- that article by him is available in lots of places on the internet, and I'm, I'm sorry, John Michael, for revealing that, but yeah, you can search for uh, Ars Memorativa, and John Michael Greer, and you should get a copy of his article. Um, and he has a really, really simple, entirely imaginal memory garden that he walks you through creating and populating and stuff. And that's a really good way to start. Cool. And you do classes and things like that too. Like what, what do you got going oh, on? Oh yeah. I have a lot of pre-recorded classes on the art of memory and tarot and also lectures on the art of memory uh, on my website. And then also some stuff about uh, planetary magic, which I'm also really into. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks, man. This was a long time coming. This was super fun and fascinating. Um, so glad we did this. Thanks. That was a lot of fun. I'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks, man. Bye. All right. That was Eric Arneson of the Arnamancy Project. He runs a podcast. He has a website. He writes brilliant individual polymath eloquent, intelligent person. Um, I think he's a good follow-up to our prior episode. And interestingly, both of these fellows are also members of the ever-elusive Hermetic Federation uh, in Portland. So maybe this is also the influence of Hermes. You guys got some information-dense and information-rich episodes, two two in a row. If you listen closely, you'll be, probably be able to excavate all kinds of useful magical gems, theurgic gems, um, 
that you can implement in your own practice. We try and retain an emphasis on practicality in our episodes to sort of counterbalance the density of the information that's presented. Uh, It is sometimes necessary to be patient and listen closely when you have someone as intelligent as Eric, because there's a lot being said and a lot being shared and a lot being given. And for everything that's said, if you read between the lines, you'll probably get even more. I'm grateful that he came on. It was really interesting. And what a foray into the applications of the power of the imagination and memory. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Super glad we had him on. And you're right. uh, Great addition and great follow-up to to our episode with, with Arun, Joseph. Interesting that they are both in the same city and, you know, we're friends with both of them. And they are aligned in, with similar interests. And yeah, this episode really went into the deep end in a good way as far as the imaginal realm, the imagination, and ties in really nicely with lots of episodes that we've had in the past and uh, follows a theme that has been running through, well, I'd say, most of our episodes, really. And uh you know, it, it's just nice to to be able to talk with someone of such a brilliant mind and just humble, nice guy, fun guy, um, just a blast to talk to. So glad we finally did it. And Eric also is a professional tarot reader, and from what I hear, he's good as what he's good at what he does. So additionally, if you're interested in a reading that may be edifying from someone who clearly has some very interesting gifts and talents that he's developed you might want to consider getting a reading from him as well he does all kinds of things yes absolutely he's very gifted in that respect as well so cool man so glad we did that what do you got for your book review this week or this episode the book i have this week is a landmark book uh it's very it's literally in my opinion a landmark a landmark text that is historically very important it is by a absolutely wonderful wonderful man brilliant individual Uh, i consider him an exemplar in many ways Uh, truly good person in my opinion his name is uh uh, matthew ravignot and matthew i should say uh, right reverend matthew ravignot and he is a bishop in the French Gnostic Church. Matthew has engaged in painstaking study and translation of source materials of the French Gnostic tradition. This book is uh, his uh, the sort of summation thus far of his work along these lines, and it's called The French Gnostic Church, Doctrinal and Liturgical Evolution. It's based on hitherto unknown, untranslated sources, you know, sources in libraries, sources in archives. And this is the first ever English language book to reveal in a way that is comprehensive and clear how how the first Gnostic church in modern times came about, developed liturgically, doctrinally, organizationally, it goes into the sacramental life of the church, and it's divided into four parts, which correspond to the four eras of the church. 
There's it's very detailed, and it includes documents that have never been translated into English. It's for anyone interested in the Gnostic tradition, uh, especially in its flowering in the modern age, in this age. This is the book. Uh, to me, it, it is essential reading if you're interested in these subjects. Again, this is not so much about Gnosticism of the Najamadi Library era. This is this is about the flowering of Gnosticism that occurred a little bit later. You know, so it goes into people like Jules Wanel and Bricot. Goes into um, the Church of um, Constant Chevillon, Robert Ambelaine, and he shows how the liturgies developed, how the orientation towards the ancient Gnostic perspective was uh, developed and expressed through these lines. He talks about some of the seminal figures, which included prominent. Uh, people in initiatic orders, masons, symbolist poets and artists, Peladon, people like this. Uh, he goes very deeply into it, and it just is so illuminating. It's so interesting. It, it's fascinating. When I was younger and I became intrigued by the French Gnostic Church, there was very little available to study. And what was available was sometimes of a dubious nature. Now we have a resource in the English language, which will be interesting to people who are of an esoteric persuasion, people who are interested in the history of it, people who are, who are interested in the sort of dovetailing between people in initiatic orders and say the 17, 1800s and the artistic world of that time. It's really just, it's essential in my opinion, essential reading for people interested in these things. Uh, Matthew himself is an intriguing person as well. He, um, he of course, is a Gnostic bishop within the French Gnostic Church, but he is also deeply into involved in martial arts and heraldic subjects. He's the founder and head sensei of the not-for-profit Daijiken Dojo, the Great Compassion Fist Dojo, and he has a seventh degree black belt in traditional Okinawan Goju, Ryu, Karate, and Kobudo. He leads a Gnostic parish and a Martinist lodge with its inner orders in his home city. And as I said at the beginning of this, he is a truly, truly wonderful person. So he has he's very upright and he has great integrity. So you can count on the fact that what you're reading here is not peppered with fanciful speculations or bent to fit a particular worldview. He he deals with this in a in a scrupulous and um rigorous way. And his translations are very good too. He clearly has a command of both the French and the English languages. So it flows very nicely. He understands the nuances of the French language very well. And so he's able to, to translate those into it. He's written a couple of other books, uh, The Original High Degrees and Theurgical System of the Masonic Elect Cohen Knights of the Universe, and A Manual for the Gnostic, Doctrines, Practices, and Prayers of the Esoteric Christian Tradition. Uh, he's also written articles in Masonic, Esoteric, Martial Arts, and Heraldic Subjects. Again, this book, is called the French Gnostic Church Doctrinal and Liturgical Evolution. It's recently gone into a second edition. 
with where additional material has been added and um, and where some uh, revisions have occurred. I strongly recommend this. It's not going to necessarily be something that's going to appeal to people who are interested in this sort of tabloidistic, uh, you know, uh, spirit science, internet Gnostic nonsense. But for those people who have a passion for the actual tradition, this book is essential. That was quite a commercial. That was great. Well, I have so much respect for him and so much respect for this book. It's filling a much needed uh, place in the history. It, it, it's it, it's irre, it's irreplaceable. It's it's truly a, it's truly a landmark. It's truly monumental, and I cannot recommend it enough. All right, cool, nice, sounds amazing. Uh, thanks for that again. Thank you to all our listeners. Um, we appreciate your support. Please. Uh, subscribe to us on all the platforms give us a like give give us a review all the normal things Um, and uh, we'll see you back in the next episode 